Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to another show of the Doctor's Lab with Dr. Khalid Green and myself, Dr. Abdelhaq Baker. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, Khalid. Wa alaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Hayakallah, Doctor. Kaifa halik, Sheikh. Wa alhamdulillah, how's everything? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And today, Khalid, um, I want you to, um, if you don't mind uh, introducing some of the aspects we're going to be discussing, because we, we, were, we were preparing for this, inshallah. We were preparing for this, but uh, you're, you're, the, you're the man. You're the man on the <laughs> mic, man. You're the, you're, you've got that, that way. But uh, well, one of the things we, we, we were going to discuss today is the, some of the academic frameworks, or a, a very important academic framework that... Uh, many of the think tanks or some of the think tanks uh, refer to regarding uh, radicalism and making links between, uh, you know, extremism and extremist and extremist ideology and ideologues, you know. So, uh, yeah, trying to unpack and unravel some of those uh, some of those schematics, you know, that was that was one of the key things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's why we're looking at reasons for radicalization as we see it, right. uh, floating man, how we've looked at those things. And Khalid, I think it's important, like you're referring um, in this instance to the combating terrorism, combating terrorism centers, militant ideological um, or ideology atlas from 2006. Mm. And I know that when it came to my attention, um, when I, I was in the, the second year of my PhD studies, I tried to raise it with, uh, with a, a number of students of knowledge and, and brothers to highlight, look, the, the, the academics are writing and they're getting busy concerning mm. Salafia. And it was before that, actually. It was um, from 2001 when after 9-11 and I was looking at things from that time. And I tried to petition students of knowledge to say, look, take these papers to the scholars. We've got enough work in Arabic to translate or for scholars to write and to counter or be, get ahead of the curve and be proactive in giving our narrative. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, that wasn't taken up. Um, mm. I think there was still that um, overwhelming defensiveness and insularity because of the spotlight changing upon Salafis and Salafia in the West um, mm. following 9-11. So I think this particular paper, I found it interesting, and I, I actually cite, as you know, that concentric circle from Muslim moving to jihadi um, constituencies. I use that particular framework from this paper um, to give another explanation of it, but also to explain the context of what their theory was, because it wasn't far wrong in some, some particular instances. Mm. But I want to, as we go into it, I'm going to start off by saying <clears> what they said and this is something going back 14 years to this paper is important to reflect and review where we are now because i feel in some instances as uh wider community or communities i think we as salafis in the west may have dropped the ball somewhat especially mm. when we look at manifestations of this paper and some of the things we're going to be looking at today so they say on page five in the footnote and this is McCanson um, and, and Brenner who, who uh, put this paper together, some co-authored it with a few others. We recognize that the use of jihadi, in inverted commas, to designate Salafis of a militant stripe is controversial. They acknowledge that. 
Yeah. Some analysts feel that it cedes too much to militant Salafis to ratify their use of the term. They call their movement Al-Harakat Al-Jihadiyah, the jihadi movement, since jihad has positive connotations in Islam. However, we have opted to use it for the following reasons. First, it has wide currency in the Western counterterrorism community. There's the one thing you see there, problematic. <clears throat> Second, the proposed alternatives are either too imprecise or polemically charged to be an, um, an analytically useful. Third, jihadism, in inverted commas, indicates the centrality of religious warfare in the militant Salafi worldview. Fourth, using the label makes jihadis accountable for giving the term a bad name and for not living up to the high standard of conduct associated with jihad. So they know that they're sullying um, a particular term Mm. by 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 attaching it to the takfiris in that instance and the salafis mm. and then they say finally the term is used in arabic arab media and was coined by a devout saudi muslim who is hostile to the ideology so it's not a western neologism sorry mm. so a tongue twister there so they've actually given acknowledgements as to why they're using and um coining Salafi jihadi, knowing mm. it's problematic, knowing that it's controversial, knowing that it's being rejected by those who are Salafis in that instance, but they've pushed it. They've pushed that narrative to the point where it's become acceptable and it's more palatable among Western media. Then they do a very cheeky thing by saying, and also uh, a Saudi uh, Muslim... Mm -hmm. To is, give it some authenticity. So a, a Muslim is putting... And we've seen that sort of... Um, I'm not saying necessarily with Saudis. We've seen, we've seen it with um, more Ikhwani inclined individuals, progressive individuals. We've Definitely seen the them being cited, yeah. them, be, them being cited and quoted as an antidote, to, to, an antidote to the Salafis. Yeah. So this is admitted in this paper, blatantly, openly, page five, footnote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's uh, not anything uh, that we should be surprised at, but... Uh, it's very common, you know, they cite, as you mentioned, those progressives, uh, those who are Sufi oriented or what have you. Uh, and most of the time, these people are on the other side of the spectrum anyway. They are, as we talked about before, they are those secular extremists or radicalists. They are those progressive extremists because they are on the other end of the spectrum and they offer that critique. So then they, they, they look at that as a, a potential partner uh, to, right. to, to, to work right. with, to try to uh, denigrate uh, Salafia and to denigrate Wahhabia, as they say, and Jihadia and, and, and lump it all together. So those are those voices. And speaking of which, something that kind of upset me before we, we came to the podcast, it was, I don't know how authentic, but this was a clip of... Uh, the president of Chechnya yes. uh, in Grozny, yeah, and and yeah, and then he's sitting with a or not the president wasn't sitting, but the um, the head of uh, something in, in in Chechnya, the head of maybe the military. Uh, he was the mufti actually, the mufti. Okay. So he's got a big beard, and we we know a lot about the story in Chechnya and what you know what eventually happened from the Chechnya jihad and so forth. So anyhow. He says, you know, this, uh, you know, covering the face, it's demonic. You're looking like demons. You're not, you know, he 
demonized uh, the niqab and, and full hijab. And he had about six sisters uh, present in front of him. And then he said, do you agree with what I said? And of course, they better agree or they will be disappearing after the show or their family members will. And they said, yes, yes. And you could see some, they were hesitant, although they all had niqab. And then they started coming out. Boom. He said, so please re relieve yourself from this covering. And we know this is a Wahhabi thing, which is against Islam. And so they did. So anyhow, the bottom, the, the, the point is, is those voices are loud. Those voices are backed by governments, by entities, by think tanks. They control this narrative and they they corrupt the correct narrative, you know. And absolutely right. And to, to highlight, to, um, sorry, to endorse or not even endorse, confirm what you're saying. I'm going to go back to that paper because I've highlighted some points on there. And I know you've got mm. the paper as well. Mm. This falls in line or comes under the, the auspices of what this paper was advocating and encouraging um, governments to do. And it said here, page six now, governments combating jihadism should support messages and messengers that will resonate with the various constituencies we have identified. Since Western governments lack credibility in the Muslim world, they should do this indirectly. In particular, governments should con convince influential Islamists and Salafi leaders to renounce jihadi thinking and tactics since they are best positioned to damage the credibility of jihadis and prevent their constituencies from joining the movement. Look at what Very, you've yeah. just highlighted. Mm, mm, Look mm, at mm. what, so this is, this is open advice and recommendations yeah. from this think tank with how to, uh, with, you can't do it yourselves, Western governments. What you need to do is find credible partners, Muslims, okay, to do it for you. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue with the paper there and some may be thinking well okay what's this got with to do with reasons for radicalization unraveling the process this is in actuality part of the process because when you witness when you've got young susceptible muslims witnessing this at so-called state level chechnya for example remember one of my earlier frameworks where i talk about a pendulum <clears throat> swing effect where you've got the liberal extremism on the far left and you've got the religious extremism on the far right, that being the takfiri, violent radicalization. And what happens when you see this, this government liberalism, progressiveness being endorsed, being pushed on this particular side, those susceptible youth, those vulnerable Muslims looking at this and also looking at their parents' more traditional Islam, the, the, the natural reaction often or more often than not is to kick back and rebel against that, the status quo, the norm, the, the tradition, and to swing across to an alternative, an opposite um, alternative that has more resonance as in so much as it speaks about grievances, it talks about anger, it talks about rebellion. So then they move across. This is one of the reasons societally why radicalization takes place. Mm -hmm. And if we want to move it out of a religious context, we just have to look at what's happened in Hong Kong recently and how that a very peaceful society moved into the conflict and violence that we saw. We only have to look at Paris. We have to look at Thailand. We have to look at many Western democratic societies, your country, for example, yeah. and watch how things that you see a particular narrative being pushed and you see 
uh, an entity kicking back against that. Yeah. So it doesn't all, it doesn't only happen with, within religious contexts. Mm -hmm. It happens within um, political democratic contexts as well. I think I think uh, uh, um, something that accompanies that, and, and in a lot of those cases, that pushes the radicalization is because of the repression along with that narrative. Right. So it's so it's the narrative, and then there's usually the strong arm, and like, okay, you don't get with this narrative. We've already demonized these other guys and the ones who are dealing with the grievances and so forth, but they're going to be in prison. They're going to have to remove their hijab. They're going to have to do this. No more beards. No more praying in the masjid. Uh, you know, there, there's persecution and there's oppression. And you, you find that even in those secular uh, rebellions or what have you as well, or secular protests and so forth, there's usually a push from violence. And as you mentioned, the American context, for example, the... Uh, I don't like to say the Black Lives Movement, but I'd say the whole uh, uh, protest movement around right. Black right. Lives and the oppression and the things that have that have happened uh, and that continues to happen and that is a part of the history. It, there's been violence, you know, when your sons, when it's it's a norm for us as African Americans, right. all those things you hear that people hear in YouTube clips and all this other stuff, you know, we live that reality of hey. No matter where you are, your mother, our mothers and fathers are always concerned about us. Uh, you know, hey, make sure you have ID. A black man in America. What do you? I mean, these are literally a regular narrative. Oh, you, are you crazy? You going out of the house without your license? If the police stop you, you don't know what could happen. You better have this. You know, it's a regular, a staple because we know that it's not simple. Simply Johnny getting stopped at the thing and arguing with the police officer, it might end up in you getting shot on the spot. You know, and these are real realities. So a lot of times with those narratives, with that demonization comes the repression, the religious repression, the repression by the uh, by the by the sword, in essence. You know, no, yeah. that's right. And, and one, Imprisonment. Of the problems that we, one of the problems that we actually face, good to see you, Sister Reva, Sister Mashallah, Tabarakallah, Jassim, Walaikum Salaam. What is the problem? Excuse me is that when they mention it's almost as though they put cause problems or or issue a death knell when they say oh you need to speak to moderate salafi leaders um and the problem is salafis have always been combating violent extremism and terrorism mm. and they've always been antithetical to the extremist narrative so when there's this mention as we see in this paper here you'll get the Takfiri Dawa saying, see, mm -hmm. see, th this is what we're talking about. Mm. Despite the fact that they're two separate parallels, there's that government and the think tank parallel talking, oh, you need to look for moderate voices. Salafis have been doing this irrespective of that particular narrative, but it feeds in that parallel um, direction, the parallel trajectory that's taking place, feeds into that extremist narrative. And again, speaking to the, the vulnerable cohorts those vulnerable youth they see that and they say oh okay this must be true then if the salafis are speaking against extremism and you've got these state legislative bodies saying the salafis are the best antidote then there must be that convergence there must be that confluence between the two and therefore salafis are uh, um, in the pockets of the government or stooges or spies or, or so mm -hmm. that's problematic yeah. um, in that particular instance and is there a way um around that 
I don't think there is, except that the, the, as Salafis, we've got to keep speaking to the message that we have been upon and the manhaj and everything mm -hmm. like that, because this is centuries old. This is not a new yeah. phenomena. But yeah. going back to that paper before, um, there's some other examples I want us to look at, historic examples that are not just along this simple um, paradigm that we're discussing. And I, I'll, I'll highlight very shortly what I mean. But here, they highlight recurring themes and divisive um, issues. And they said, in addition to cataloging um, and the citation of information, researchers also wrote detailed summaries of the issues discussed in the works that they read amongst these ideologues, these Takfiri ideologues. And he highlighted um, themes that were well represented in the Takfiri, they called it jihadi, but Takfiri thought. The first one was jihadis want unity of thought they reject pluralism okay um that the idea that no one has a monopoly on the, the truth and that the political system that fosters it um and the and the political system that fosters it democracy okay so they want unity of thought i think many religions want unity of thought okay mm -hmm. so this is not this is not the the purview of of the takfiris yeah Jihadis will fight, number two, jihadis will fight or takfiris will fight um, until every country in the Middle East is ruled only by Islamic law, okay? Um, then the third one, takfiris contend that the violence they do to their own people, governments and resources are one, necessary, two, religiously sanctioned, three, really the fault of the West, Israel and apostate regimes. We know that's a very weak argument of this mm. and that the... the, the um, innocent um, civilians are collateral damage. And the fourth one they highlight here, that their cause is best served when the conflict with the local and foreign governments is portrayed as a conflict between Islam and the West. And fifth, countries in the Middle East are weak. They cannot remove tyrants or reform their societies without the help of outsiders. Jihad is the only source of internal empowerment and reform. So these were five categories that they highlighted <coughs> Um, are the, um, the, the raison d'etre, the, the call, clarion call of the takfiris. And we see, if we look at Daesh very recently, we see that they repeated some of these particular um, yeah. calls and that they resonated um, with them. Uh, Malahat is asking, who are the takfiris? When, when we talk about takfiris, we talk about those, and I'll, that brings me on to the next point here before I hand it back to Dr. Khalid. Um, looking at such the contents of their books, mm. this is who they are. They are those who declare other Muslims apostates. They attack other Muslims. They attack women and children and the elderly. They attack sources of a nation's wealth, such as tourism and the oil industry. They create political and social chaos. And they are the ones that um, they are on ideologies of um, Said Qutb in, in this particular instance. And they hold the rest of the Muslim populace, like Said Qutb did, to be in a state of jahiliya. Um, and therefore apostated from the religion. This is who the tuck theories are with that particular ideology and some of those characteristics I've highlighted. But Khalid, would you want to elaborate on, mm. on this? Because from a Dean perspective, there are a lot more um, uh, factors yeah. highlighted than this paper. But what we're actually doing as we, we do in the podcast is look at that, unpack and elaborate further. Mm -hmm. So in, 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 I guess, layman's terms or in a more simple, simplistic fashion, Tekfiris are anyone who abuse the principles of tekfir, which means declaring another Muslim to be a disbeliever. Okay, so 
it isn't that someone can't leave the religion. We all know people can leave the religion of Islam, you know, and there are traits and uh, there are sins and things you can do to negate your Islam. For example, if someone steps on the Quran, okay, this is a an act of kufr, that if they do this, especially intentionally, we're not talking about by mistake, but if they do this intentionally, this is a, a type of disbelief, okay? Because uh, the Quran is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are ideas, meaning uh, beliefs, that take you out of the fold of Islam, and there are actions that can take you out of the fold of Islam, and statements that can take you out of the fold of Islam. So with that being the case, anyhow, the takfiris, they abuse the principles of takfir, and some of those principles of takfir, as takfir is of two types, takfir, takfir mutalaq, or takfir ma'in, which means the general takfir means whoever does such and such disbelieves. For example, those who believe uh, Allah has a child or a wife or a daughter, they have disbelieved. That is general takfir. The takfir al-ma'in, meaning it when you apply it to an individual. So if you say, oh, Shelly said Allah has a son. She has, that is now we are applying the principles of takfir to her. What you find with the takfiris is they abuse those principles. For them, it, it just doesn't, they don't really uh, distinguish those things. For example, they just have their, uh, as he mentioned, Sayyid Qutb, uh, before him, Maududi. And I know people get upset, but if you, I, I have extensive research, we can unpack about that, uh, about how they laid a foundation, especially because they were a product of their time of rejecting colonialism, uh, which is a good thing, but it's it affected their Islamic ideology and their Islamic politics. That's why it became so political. From them came other movements such as Jamaat al-Takfir wa Hijra, Jamaat al-Jihad, okay? And these are people like uh, many figureheads anyhow. Then you had later, much later from them, uh, you had who were influenced uh, by that that ideology and that movement, Sheikh uh, Omar Abdurrahman, the Egyptian cleric in America, who was arrested and imprisoned for life for the world the initial World Trade Center um, attempt and bombing or something like this. And anyhow, it's an ideology. So when you say someone is a tekfiri, that means someone who is abusing the principles that are laid down by the scholars of Islam based on the Quran and the Sunnah, they are abusing the principles to take another Muslim out of the fold of Islam. This ideology, this creed, this methodology began with uh, one of the first sects in Islam, which are called the Khawarij. And they're known, the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Khawarij Kilab al-Nar, the Khawarij are the dogs of the hellfire. And what they did is they made takfir of the Sahaba, they really focused on rulership and said, hey, you need to rule by what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed. And they were saying this about the Sahaba as if the Sahaba, the best of the ummah, didn't know how to rule by the Sharia. But, and they were ignorant of the Sunnah and you find these same traits with modern day takfiris a lot of times. Now there are definitely some variations and there are some you know, that just have takfiri traits and they have knowledge. But what's very interesting from, say, from Maududi, Said Qutb, and some of these more, the contemporary revival of takfirism, if you will, is most of those uh, ideologues or most of those, those uh, 
you know, most of those individuals, they were not Sharia trained. Most yeah. of them, like, you know, some of, a lot of them were engineers. Um, I can't remember Mo Duty. His, his actually, uh, I think he was a newspaper reporter and journalist, some other, yeah. a journalist. Yeah. He was a journalist. Said Kutub had various backgrounds. He was uh, known as a, a deeb. He was a, a liter, you know, very um, like a linguist or something like this. Um, so you could see they were influenced. And even those who came after them, the Jamaatul Tikfirwa Hijra, Jamaatul Jihad, they were like agricultural engineers and they became the most extreme. Why? And that's a common trait is you won't find scholars amongst them. You will not find true scholars, just like the original Khwarij, the Sahaba weren't amongst them. The, and likewise, a trait of the contemporary Tekfiris generally is that you won't find any scholars, no scholars of Ahl Sunnah from amongst them. Now you might have some people more now, they, they have had some that uh, have studied, you have Tekfiri that have done some studying or at least a lot of reading, Abu Muhammad Maqtasi and others. But anyhow, hopefully in a nutshell, that was as brief as I could try to be. They abused the principles of declaring another Muslim to be an apostate because that's not for the common person. That should be for really the Islamic judge in a society to make those judgments and scholars, scholars that are well grounded in that, uh, in that field and in those sciences and to be able to make that, uh, those judgments. But as far as it's sticking, it goes to the judges in Muslim countries, not uh, just anyone. I, I think that's that's really comprehensive. Jazakallah khair for that, Khalid. And that leads on, I think, really well to the next one, because you mentioned um, slightly earlier about context um, for radicalization when I was talking about that polarization that takes place. And you mentioned the key one in the, in the, the, the Muslim world, that being of... Um, Colonial colonization, should I say? Yes. Colonialism. Yeah. And what we what we can look at, for example, let's look at some of the behavioral aspects that are there. And while you can Sister Sabrina, what we can look at, like Al Uzla, seclusion, isolation. This is a meritorious act, and we see many meritorious acts in the Dean being practiced in the extreme by these particular individuals. And once they've distorted the ideology and thereafter the methodology, the practice. So when we look at, for example, an individual who I know you studied, um, Shukri Mustafa, mm. and when he influenced these followers in Egypt, okay, he, pro he propagated that they go into this seclusion and isolation from Egypt because they no longer deemed it a Muslim society. Mm. that everyone was abiding by the law of the land, which wasn't the Sharia. So therefore they were infidels, they were non-Muslims. So they had to um, go to this form of Uzla, um, this form of um, seclusion. So this was um, uh, an extreme understanding of Uzla. And I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but another characteristic of this, which was distorted prohibition of academic education versus illiteracy. So they took, mashallah, we know the miracle of the Quran and the revelation upon the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and, and that Allah um, uh, had uh, raised the Prophet sallallahu with that condition, which was meritorious as far as the Prophet sallallahu was concerned Salam. because of the miraculous nature that was there. But then to take that and then eschew, as some still do today, that... Um, uh, being illiterate is a better condition to being knowledgeable, academic or otherwise. This was um, problematic 
in, in the incident here because we see here, and I'm referring to Al-Mutiri where he highlights um, Shukra Mustafa's justification for uh, shunning education in preference for illiteracy. And he says here, he cites him, forbidding attaining knowledge via newly introduced, introduced means such as colleges is also forbidding something while there is no evidence for that prohibition. Hence, it is also a form of extremism. So that's what Shukri Mustafa was doing. Um, his reliance, again, was on a distorted understanding of what illiteracy meant. Because we see in the Quran, um, this is highlighted as a deficiency in the Quran, when we look at it, for example, in um, Surah Baqarah, Ayat 78. And there are among the illiterates, those who know not the book, but see there in their own desires and they do nothing but conjecture. This is the verse of the Quran. So mm. this was something that we saw. And sadly, this is not just restricted to the, the um, uh, extremist thought at the moment now, ideologically, ideological extremists. There's a behavioral extreme where we see even those amongst the Sunnah contradictorily saying we shouldn't study. Okay. And yet we see on the flip side, either they're studying in other institutions or their children are studying. So, we're talking now about reasons for radicalization and how particular manifestations come about from that. And I'm looking at this juncture, I'm actually looking at my PhD. Yeah. Another one, um, Khalid, which is, is strange um, for, for some who will hear this. The prohibition of congregational prayers in Masajid. And Shukri Mustafa advocated that. And I witnessed that as chairman of Brixton Mosque in the 90s, actually. When we saw some of those who were subscribing to Takfiri thought, they never attended at the time of the Jama'at prayers, the congregational prayers. But we saw them a few minutes after when the Jama'at had finished praying upstairs, we saw them gathering downstairs for a second Jama'at. And you might say, okay, they just missed the prayer. No, as chairman, we saw a, I saw a pattern and uh, Mashura saw a pattern that this was a deliberate thing because they believed that praying with the main jama'ah, what your your prayer would be invalid because yeah. they didn't hold those who were praying to be a Muslim in that particular mm. instance. So this is how fundamental aspects and meritorious aspects of the deen, religious practice, were distorted and became, um, became oh restrictive because of their belief. And another mm. one, um, and I'll conclude on this particular point that I looked at for my PhD, prohibiting employment in government positions. Shukri Mustafa, Saeed Qutub, the Takfiri thought holds this. So they say, say, for example, like in Egypt, it happened. This happened in um, Algeria when Abu Qatada said that those wives who were married to policemen who were being paid by the government, they were non-Muslims. It cascaded right down to their children. This is why we saw these mass killings and everything, where they said that if they don't leave their husbands, if the people who are in society do not rise up against the government, then by, by default, they are non-Muslim. Mm. Okay? And so, yeah. particularly those working in government positions. And the, the strange thing that they failed to um, look at, which is the problem with, the, uh, highlights the, 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 the problematic nature of their thought. When you bring them the story of Yusuf, who rose to the most powerful position, in government of its time, they have no counter-argument to that. That you, Prophet Yusuf salam, was wazir and in the highest position of government. So according to their understanding, 
takfir should have been performed upon him. Mm. And mm. this is impossible uh, yeah. uh, to do against a, a prophet. That's cool for in, in and of itself, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so, so, yeah, I, I think it goes without saying, when they reject praying in the masjid, that alone right there, everything else is negated. You know what I mean? They, even looking at government positions, all that, that's negated because for them, and I'll give you an exact encounter that I had. I, I was fresh from Yemen. I went to the UAE, uh, met an individual, myself and another brother. And discussion comes up and so forth. And he was a hardcore tekfiri. He was, you know, he was just saying, oh, you know, this and this. And they're all disbelievers and this and that and the other. And I said, and so we got into a heated argument. All the scholars, they're monafic and this and that and the other. So then the adhan uh, went off, you know, it was time for, for Salat. They called to the caller to prayer, the Muaddin. And we were outside. And I said, subhanAllah, khalas, khalas, let's go pray. And, you know, we can just finish this afterwards. We we're both very angry. I mean, it just was just out of control. He was basically making takfir of me. And, and, and he said, uh, he said, I'm not praying in that masjid. He said, the masjid is Dar Masmo. Uh, uh, is Masjid Darar, you know, it's the Masjid of the hypocrites. He said the, the, the Imam is getting paid by the apostate government. He is a, a, a disbeliever. The Mu'adhan is a hypocrite, and so are the people who pray behind the Imam because they are praying behind this disbeliever who's getting paid by the government. Da, 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 on the, we call that Tasilsil Fi Takfir. The scholars mention that this is called, you know, Takfir by inference. So it's, if X is a disbeliever, then this one's a disbeliever, then this one's a disbeliever because they are in the house with them. And this one's a disbeliever because they made pizza for them. And this one, and th this is literally how extreme this man would not pray in the Mashi with the Muslims. He would rather wander through the land. He was in, he's a foreigner in the UAE, he was from Jordan. And he just prayed in the desert. He would not pray in the masjid because all of them He's the only one who's on the correct Islam. Everyone else is a disbeliever or a hypocrite. They're either one or the other. And, and both of them are disbelievers as a, you know, as far as the, the, their, their ending in the hereafter. So it shows you the danger of this ideology that, as you mentioned, they believed in hijra, especially those extreme groups like Jamaat Tikfir or Jamaat Jihad. They would not, uh, they were living in Egypt because both of those groups developed, uh, were in Egypt, right? And and you can see that Egypt has a, a long history from Sayyid Qutb to others, even Hassan right. al-Banna, the beginner of the Quran Muslimin. Although he wasn't mostly mostly in, uh, known for violence, but it's you know Qutb's radicalization in prison after being repressed and so forth that really made his pen hot. And you find every all the others benefited from it. Like if you listen to Abu Hamza Misri, what did he say? He said, he said, uh, talking about either Faraj or, or Shukri Mustafa, he said Shukri Mustafa was extreme uh, in taking from that excellent book, meaning Sayyid Qutb's Milestones. So they all drink from the same well, but, uh, you know, he, he just felt Shukri Mustafa was just going a bit too extreme by making Hijra in Egypt, you know, making, declaring them all Jahiliya, people had to part from their families, girls leaving and could only marry in their Jama'ah. They had to, you know, separating brothers and sisters and family members, making Hijra or making Hijra and cutting, you know, you know, migrating 
to the countryside because it was impermissible to be outside. And as you said, this is the trade of Daesh and other groups. But you, of course, you have some some things that distinguish them. You know, Al Qaeda has, you know, their uh, role was more destabilizing uh, states and so forth. Whereas Daesh is this, you know, meaning Daesh, meaning uh, ISIS and ISIL or whatever you want to call them, is to establish a state or what they believe was the Khalifa. So you had to make uh, hijra to them, meaning you had to migrate to them, no matter if you're in Sweden, you're in America, you're in the UK, you're in China, but you have to, you, for the legitimacy of your Islam, you had to make hijra to them, or you had to do acts of terror in your society. And I gave quotes right. in our first thing, and I have tons of them directly from their magazine and from their spokespeople. So you can see, you know, there's a chain, there's a link between these ideologues. They take they take uh, they, their ideology develops in the context of their times and they, you know, they build one after another. There's a great chain of uh, <laughs> of Tekfiri narrators and Tekfiri uh, adherents and ideologues and they benefit one from another. They take their ideology and they benefit and and but they don't really benefit they destroy that's right but, uh but yeah this brings that no that's that that brings us on nicely that dovetails really nicely um Khalid, onto that context that you've given there so you'll also see that in that society and we've seen it in the west that consideration of it being an abode of war darl harb yeah this is so a big in that instance in that instance now they then extend it to say that criminality within Islam and outside of Islam is permissible. Mm. And this is where they catch a lot of young um, individuals, we've mentioned this before, who had a propensity for violence and criminality. And they say, no, if you become Muslim, this is now an attribute. This is now an asset. You yeah. robbing, stealing, credit card fraud, violence against non-Muslims, even having girlfriends and considering those girlfriends, they, the girlfriend considers right hand possession. I bet right. your right hand's possession. Yeah. Um, Abdullah El Faisal um, espoused this in, in, in mm. the West. Robbing Arabs who came from the Gulf countries saying, when you see them in the casinos, they've come to spend their money in the casinos, you can rob them because this is the Muslims' wealth. They get their money from oil money, which is yeah. the money, the wealth of, of the, the Muslims. If, mm. they're coming, if they're coming in Ramadan and you see them eating, they, you shows that they are fasic, they're an open sinner, so you can therefore rob them and you can harm them. This was the context and the constructs that, that the extremists enacted in 20th, 21st century Western societies. But let's move on to something that is uh, within a society, as we said, with Shukri Mustafa and what he was doing, the isolation that he did, and, and families leaving, their wider families who were Muslim. We have the case that still has reverberations around the world to this day with uh, Juhayman al-Utaybi. And for those who don't know this name, this was the individual who led a large group of extremists, they became extreme, to lay siege on the, um, the harem, uh, Makkah, in 1979, at the turn of the um, Islamic calendar. Um, it was the new century. And for, uh, that is a fascinating case study in that we saw individuals who were uh, were devout practices of the faith, who were studying 
in um, not Medina University, but they would be sitting with scholars who were rising through the ranks as big scholars until the scholars started seeing the changes in them, the radicalization, the violent radicalization, the ideological extremism that started to take root among them. And so we know that Sheikh uh, Abu Bakr al-Jazair was, was, uh, was with them, um, not with them, but he used to, they used to go to him for lessons. We know that Sheikh Ibn Baz, when he was in um, the Medina, they used to go um, to him when Sheikh al-Albani um, used to visit, because at that time he was coming into the country to visit, and they used to sit with him. We know that Sheikh Mukbil, um, when he was here, was initially with them. Again, I'm going to highlight, this was before they started traversing that path of extremism. Actually, there was a, a, a pivotal meeting that took place on the roof of their headquarters on one occasion, where there was a big discussion where the Shayuk, Sheikh Abu Bakr al Jazair in particular, met with them and mm. condemned and chastised um, Juhayman and Utaybi for the thoughts that they were having after they were um, going into the harem with their shoes on, saying this is from the Sunnah and causing fitna, not looking at context and everything like this. Um, there's a, the, the, a fascinating account, and the best one I have heard to date was by Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips. Mm. Um, you can get it online from 1993 because, again, before they traversed his path and became even more radically extreme, uh, uh, Abu Amina Bilal and a number of others were studying in the study circles and were amongst this <coughs> wide group of individuals who were devout and everything. But he himself started seeing some of the um, extreme acts and that isolation, the increasing isolation from the, the Muslims um, in, in the country they were living in. Saudi Arabia, for example, they moved off into the desert. Um, this is a fascinating um, account of where extremism takes root when, as you mentioned earlier, you don't have ulama with you. And some might say, well, no, no, they had ulama. No, the ulama left them. They left them. In the same way we saw there were no sahaba with the khawarij. Hmm. When you look at Daesh today, Daesh had no ulama with them. And they had and who they clear, thought were yeah, they had their so, their scholars who agreed with well, their no, technique. Yeah, 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 no, no, yeah, had no ulama, yeah, yeah, they had yeah. no recognized yeah, yeah. with them. Right. And this is the thing that we see with the um, the extreme call and dawa, a reliance upon classical. And I looked at this in my PhD. They rely on classical scholars and give their own interpretation of those classical scholars, and they disparage and distance the layperson from contemporary scholars so that they are the ones who are the interpreters of the classical scholars whichever way they want and so this causes confusion again amongst the susceptible individuals because they hear them quoting Sheikh Islam Imitaymiya they hear them quoting classical scholars from the Salaf but yeah. they're giving their own interpretations um, on that particular instance so with uh, Juhayman al Utaybi. They ended up being on their own. He wasn't a very educated um, individual. He was a devout worshipper, like some of the extremists are. But he was. Um, what happened is there was a student of knowledge who was studying in Riyadh and a very um, charismatic speaker, um, Katani. I can't remember his first name, but for one of the mm. Katanis. And, and, and basically, he was having problems because he was speaking more vociferously in Riyadh to the extent that he got kicked out from doing sermons and everything like that. Mm. Then the dream started coming. And we know that shaitan can come in people's dreams. And um, Johayman saw him as the Mahdi. 
and started convincing him that he was the Mahdi. And when they were roaming around in the deserts and everything, more of the companions of Al Juhayman and Al Taibi, his group, started having these similar dreams that mm. the Mahdi was amongst them and that it, the time was coming. And then the plan and was was concocted to go to um, to take over the harem and have the people doing Hajj um, give bay'ah, give uh, allegiance to, to to the Mahdi, to Qatani, who Juhayman married his sister to um, mm. in that instance as well. So. This is a fascinating story and a warning, a warning that when there's a detachment from scholars, no matter what the socio-political, socio-religious context is, okay, no matter how despondent you might be with the society that you're actually living in, when you start divorcing yourself from bona fide scholars, from the point of theology, from the point of manhaj, from sunnah and things like this, that's when you start going astray. And I'm going to throw this little bit of thing in without going into detail here. This is when you have individuals in the West now calling themselves sheikhs, as you see, Peter, elders of the, the scholars dying, and they've not even been given such reference and do not have such scholasticism under their belts in that particular instance. This is when we start moving to from a behavioral type of extremism to an ideological type of extremism. Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, as, you, as you said, you know, and... Uh, to put it a lot of it in a funnel, ignorance. Ignorance is mm. such a great danger. That ignorance and that zeal, that's a trait of the original Khawadage. And we've all personally probably known many individuals who fell into that. And right. subhanAllah, those same traits. So maybe they were not oppressed, they were not repressed, but they had the zeal. They wanted to study, they wanted to make hijrah. But then they sort of distance themselves. And this is why one of the traits a lot of times looking for within communities is looking for those individuals who kind of distance themselves all the time. They kind of cut themselves off from their brothers and sisters. A person can be quiet, yeah, but yes. we obviously don't know what's going through a person's mind. I know two particular cases I can think of, and I know a whole bunch of others who were repressed by the system, set up by the system, but they also gave the system certain, you know what I mean? They fed into that narrative, so they were right. extremists. So of course you're not gonna get a massage from the society. They're going to put you in prison for a time and, and a repress you. So, uh, but going back to the ignorance, particular individuals I know who were set up, very ignorant, they had the zeal, they began to kind of distance themselves, do their own, one particular individual did his own dawah. He did his own dawah. He even contacted me while I was in Saudi Arabia. Hey, you want to do a YouTube video? Let's do a collaboration. I said, Ahi, really, you should just study more. I said, I didn't start doing YouTube videos until about 10 years after having learned something. 10 years. I you know, just started little things. Don't be in a hurry. You haven't studied anything. Just be patient. So he took that. I saw and I went to his page. I saw what he was putting out there. Just all this political stuff, all this garbage. Make a long story short, the FBI set him up, said, hey, we've got some weapons for you, brother. You know, da, 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 da. you know, they did through their through their operations. He bought into it. Wow. He's un under the jail right now. Another individual. Also, the Uzla, like you said, he was also ignorant. Very a brother I'd known for years and, you know, had positive thoughts about him. He turned out, you know, doing some evil things. And I don't want to say it all on here. But subhanAllah, this is what um, that, you know, being alone, being ignorant, having zeal, those are traits that I think we can work with as 
uh, individuals to kind of look as warning sign. Look that. Look for those traits in your children. Look for those traits in your brothers and sisters in the masjid. You know, we should engage one another, not to spy on one another, but to engage one another to know the well-being of one another because right. you'll see those right. traits. Some of those individuals, some we saw the traits, some we didn't. You know, some they were distributing and eating up the Sheikh Faisal, Sheikh Faisal tapes, the Abu Hamza tapes, the Abu Qatada translations, you know, and they were active in this. Those ones were known. You know, we knew they were going to a path of destruction and eventually they're going to end up working for the FBI and working for those agencies, which many of them actually did after they got busted and had to do a plea. And, you know, it's, it's such a dangerous path and it's such a destructive path. That's why I've always been passionate about this and why I did my master's and my PhD on this topic because it's something affected my community right. been passionate about you know right and, and, and one of the things uh, again that, that, that you've mentioned i think that good question from medium yeah okay um, yeah, yeah, so, and we're, we'll deal with that very shortly inshallah but one of the things we see from the tuck theory when we're looking at this um mccann's paper again this combat mm. terrorism um paper the tuck theories want a totalitarian system of government in which no one is allowed to think for themselves Anyone who does not share their understanding of Islam will be declared an apostate and executed. We saw that in Daesh. Remember, this paper was 2006. Yeah. This is something that they got right in that instance there. But I want to highlight, I want the, the viewers to understand when they're hearing this um, onslaught, as we've mentioned, and the reason why we do this podcast bi-weekly against Salafia, there is a strategy to diminish the narrative of Salafia. There is a strategy to have those from within the faith denigrate and marginalize Salafia. They started with the, the, the Khariji Takfiri belief, which was correct to do. Then they targeted what they called Islamism, okay? Um, the politicized understanding, not all politicization, mm. uh, all politicized understandings are extreme in themselves, but it, it is uh, a path to extremism if there's not the foundation of knowledge in that particular instance. That's why Salafis largely remain apolitical. But I want to read here something that there's an acknowledgement that was there. And from looking at the acknowledgement of these academics in this paper, we should then become clued up as to what is happening to the most authentic um, understanding of the religion and the most effective in combating extremism as we know it today. And they say here on page 10 of the report, the West, especially the US, should be modest about its ability to intellectually challenge Salafism. The movement gained, gained mass popularity during the last century and Salafis now constitute a majority or significant portion of the Muslim population in the Middle East and North Africa. This is despite the fact that it was often strongly opposed by secular nationalist regimes and non-Salafi clerics. Western governments have neither the local credibility nor the cultural expertise necessary to diminish the popularity of Salafism. Now, that's a key observation from 2006. And I, I want to read the first sentence again. The West, especially the US, should be modest about its ability to intellectually challenge Salafism. So let's look at what they've done instead. They've looked at particular practices. They've identified particular markers. They've either obscured it with extremist practice and extremist belief. 
they've made orthodoxy shift paradigmatically to extremism, moving progressiveness and liberalism further to the middle as mainstream mm. Islam. And Muslims need to realize this, that they've made this acknowledgement here. They've made this, 2006, the paper's available. We can make it available online if they want to look at it. It's a short paper. And I want to, as we're drawing to a conclusion, Khalid, as you know, they then did their map, their ideological militant map, which is mm. like a spider's web. Yeah. And I don't want the viewer to look at it and think, oh, what's going on here? But I want them to see the detail with which they've connected their own dots as to which extremist protagonist links with a classical scholar here, links with another um, scholar, contemporary scholar, not scholar, but extremist protagonist or a classical scholar, and where these lines join up um, and which ones are stronger, which ones are more firmer in that particular instance. The reason I want the viewer to look at this very briefly is to understand this is Western academia, think tanks and governments looking at our dean, developing a narrative and developing a conclusion realizing they can't deal with Salafia intellectually and then placing other strategies from within the Muslim populace and without to diminish, dilute and marginalize the Salafi narrative. So yes. Hassan, can you Promoted. put that, that, yeah. that, that network up please at the moment so the, the viewer can see it. And as you're looking at this, it, the conclusive aspect there, and I'm going to explain what that is. It's very small at the bottom, but it's an appendix. It's the ideological influence map. And the bright red constellations are of those um, Abu uh, Muhammad Makdisi, uh, for example, um, Abdullah ibn Nasa al-Rashid. Uh, you've got um, Abu Qatada al-Falistini there. But the arrows indicate who is quoting from whom. The thick lines show who the authors cite from repeatedly. And the size of the nodes, the brighter the nodes, the red um, dot, is someone who is a key broker of information, okay, in the network, the, the key protagonist of Dawa. Look how intricate this network is, this map, this uh, uh, influence map is, this spider's web. Have we seen the like of this before? If you can take that down, please, um, Hassan, now. Have we seen the like of this before? We have actually better than that. We have... Hadith. We have the science of Hadith and we have the tra chains of narration mm. where we have um, uh, the, the, the lines going right back to the Prophet Sallallahu This is a science within itself where there's authenticity and everything like this. But the fact that non-Muslim academia is trying to move along that particular route in and of themselves, bringing their own trajectory it's something that we need to be very, very aware of. Mm. And why do I say that? Because in essence, it means that we need to go back and understand our deen, understand um, these sciences of hadith, for example, understand the sources of the sunnah, understand what I've highlighted there, that because they cannot deal with Salafia intellectually, they denigrate, they belittle, um, we're mocked by with our own co-religionists for particular um, adherence in this, in, in this instance. This is something that we need to look at. And again, I want to, I'm going to conclude on this particular point here, Carlin, and hand it back to you. They continue and they say here, since Western governments lack credibility in the Muslim world, they should pursue the efforts that I've highlighted, the strategies indirectly, mm. finding mouthpieces. And as you've mentioned, 
among those extremist protagonists like Abu Hamza, they got him to do their bidding. And while he was in, uh, accusing others, like myself and other Salafis, of being informers and Faisals doing the same, when he was on trial, and it's there, you can Google it, Abu Hamza al-Misri, they brought out over 100 pages, his lawyers, to show evidence that he'd been working with the police in the UK since the 90s. Abu Sorry. Hamza al-Misri. Mm. Evidence wow. is it from his own mouth mm, he'd been mm, working mm, mm. with the police, with mm, the authorities. Mm. So here, that's part of their stratagem. Okay, those extremists, once they've got them in, they get them to do their bidding. But I want to use this conclusive word that they mentioned here. Finally, a word about, in inverted commas, moderate Muslims. The measure of moderation depends on what type of standard you use. If by moderate, one means the renouncement of violence in the achievement of political goals, then the majority of Salafis are moderate. But if by moderate, one means an acceptance of secularism, capitalism, democracy, gender equality, and a commitment to religious pluralism, then Salafis would be extremists on all counts. Then again, there are not many Muslim religious leaders in the Middle East that would qualify as moderates according to the second definition. Until there are, the international community should focus on alienating jihadis, takfiris, from the broader Salafi movement. While it may be distasteful to work with non-violent Salafi leaders, they are best positioned to delegitimize jihadi violence and monitor the activities of the more militant elements of their movement. That was mm. their conclusive statement, which I quoted in my PhD. Yeah. So what they're doing, they're saying that the takfiris are a subset of the Salafis, even though they know from the beginning this is a problematic context to do, but they've done it because they want to couch them within the Salafi movement. Mm. But it, at the end of the day, they realize they're not intellectually able from a Western standpoint to deal with Salafism, but also they realize that they don't have the legitimacy to deal with it. And what they need to do is they've got little choice, but to accept or acknowledge the Salafi narrative and standpoint in effectively combating violent extremism. This is a paper that resonated amongst academic circles, yeah. um, not just um, academic circles, realm. 14 mm. years ago, which you and I studied. And many may not have heard this paper or be aware of this particular paper, but when those are saying, oh, the Salafis, the Salafis, the Salafis, then you're buying into that narrative and that strategy that was espoused all that time ago, 14 plus years ago, to say, this is what we need to realise about the Salafis. We cannot deal with them, so we must diminish them, while also acknowledging that their narrative is the most effective um, antidote to extremism. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is, yeah, as you said, that was 14 years ago, subhanAllah. And the paradigm has shifted a bit to where now there is, you know, there's a great backlash internally, meaning within the Muslims against Salafis and so forth. There are many more modernist and progressive voices. They're really uh, active in their dawah and appealing to a lot of youth, a lot of reverts, and a lot of uh, people who were born Muslim. You know, there's a lot of, you know, it's that's the mainstream now. The mainstream is sisters, no hijab makeup and this and that and the other and 
maybe supporting almost, it's becoming mainstream for Muslims to support LGBTQTPBSG or whatever, uh, you know, uh, not just rights, but even beyond that, even beyond right. that, it's yes. way beyond that. And it's, it's, it's amazing that people know nothing about their religion and will support the most wicked and evil of practices. So with that being the case, the paradigm is shifted. I think now, as, as I said, there's a backlash. And now that you, now you have, uh, you have those voices that they can support. Now, people might not like this, but for example, Hamza Yusuf, okay, he's not necessarily, I don't know where he fits. Is he a progressive now or what? But no doubt many progressives love him and he's very supportive. He's very popular in the general English speaking population around the world. Uh, and, you know, people like this who are anti Salafi, okay, an anti thing, although they acknowledge the effectiveness of Salafism and so forth, they are supported by governments like the UAE and so forth. You know, there's a major, because Sufism, uh, in, in a general sense, as a almost progressive, it's kind of married itself to progressive ideology, especially in this day and age, a, a lot of it, to where those voices are supported. So they are louder. You know, you'll see that they have the, they have the constituents. I would argue that substance isn't there, except for they do have financial resources. They can do stuff. You know, those guys make millions of dollars. You know, their institutes uh, Zaytuna Institute and all those other things. They make you feel good. Okay. But the ideologies and the things that they're practicing and that backlash against Salafia and what they call Wahhabia and what they call, and you know, some of them, they marry that. They're also the British, uh, academic, um, you would know him. I think he's in Oxford. Um, uh, he's Can a revert. Maybe the, but he had a, a Muslim like um, Abdul Hakim Murad. Abdul Hakim Murad. I quoted some of his statements in my research about you know basically about Salafis, but he called them Wahhabis and stuff. And he said you know he was happy to see the the progressives and other move changes in in Saudi Arabia and stuff, saying you know we have hope that eventually this unorthodox ideology will be you know destroyed more or less. You know, so you can see. These people are active. They have loud voices. They're kind of being, su they're supported. I mean, that's why people like that have main, you know, have mainstream academic positions. You know, you're not going to see a Salafi mostly is not even going to be accepted in that realm. You know, it's very difficult to even get in that realm. They're going to look before to see your works, say, hey, no, you're not about tolerance. You're not about this. You know, and you're not allowed to even in this so-called pluralistic society, you're not even allowed to differ with now that liberal progressive uh, paradigm at all. You know, you better get in line or you're kicked to the curb. So yeah, liberal, liberal fascism. Yes, absolutely. So it's very absolute. So uh, anyhow, we see the uh, we see that that, you know, now they're supporting that some points. I just want to quickly make about that. The, the schematics that you had is for one. You know, it shows the relationship between extreme extremist ideologies. Okay, and I think that was something value about it. It did make some links. Also, it shows the relationship with uh, extremist and uh, and and their uh, attempt 
to link it to Ahl Sunnah, people like Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah and so forth. No that's, doubt. That's what I was saying about the yeah. classical, the classical yeah. link yeah. without the contemporary link. Yes, yes. And so with that being the case, uh, you know, we have to answer for that. And the answer, one of the answers is, is no doubt there's going to be overlapping sources. How <clears throat> you won't find a Muslim who says no matter what group he's from, how, how far he is from the Quran and the Sunnah, who won't say that he loves the Quran and doesn't quote from the Quran. Even the progressives, many of them, they will, they will quote from the Quran, even if they quote with Bar Marley as well, but they'll quote from the Quran. And they'll use verses to, you know, the, the original Khawarij, all the groups and sects, you know, they, they will quote from the Quran. They have Dalil, but their Istanbat, their usage of the Dalil and their deriving a hukum and de deriving a ruling is uh, distorted. Okay, their usage of the evidence, you know, and their, their contextualization of it and their usage of the sunnah or lack thereof. And so, 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 so the bottom line is, of course, there's going to be overlapping lapping sources and they will not, you know, give necessarily, they'll try to contextualize Fatawa of Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah or some scholars from the Salaf even to, uh, to legitimize rebelling against leaders or to re legitimize tech fear or, you know, uh, declaring other Muslims to be apostates and so forth. Also, another point about this uh, schematic that uh, is, is that it illustrated the need for really further uh, research. And, and I think that's what our works uh, were, were about, you know, both of ours, because I use that schematic in my master's, you know, so we, we have been, you know, we've made attempts to try to address some of those issues and from a Salafi perspective, and also being more objective, because having that inner perspective uh, to try to deal with some of the the uh, the preponderance of their of their their schematics there, and then yeah, also it, yeah, it shows uh, you know in all in all it shows although they in that research may not have made that exact point, but many of the other pieces of research out there. For the, their conclusions are Salafia equals extremism, and we see from their research that they'll say no, not in, not as violent extremism, not violence. Salafia doesn't equal violence, but it equals extremists in our paradigm because we have this liberal progressive perspective. You know, you know, as as and we talked key. about. That's key. What you've said there, because I'm looking again at that statement. Okay, that they should be modest about their inability to intellectually challenge Salafism. Mm. That's an important statement that I really want to ram home to tonight. And from that acknowledgement, what then happens except to destroy and unpack and to move in the direction that you've highlighted with the liberalism that's actually there and mm. liberalism with credibility, if they can get that in that particular instance. Mm. You've got others who were once... Um, Salafi who've now moved into that liberal space. You've studied some of them. So yeah, Sakadi, mm. you mentioned in that, mm. that mm. on one occasion. Mm. So it's really important. And I want to say this because some may be um, put off or you get detractors, oh, they're, they're pushing Salafia. Let's be clear when we're talking about things here, just like these academics are talking about. If you want to criticize us about behavioral aspects, harshness, things like this, legitimate, valid, I will stand with you and say, yes, this is a problem. But like 
these academics, these think tanks, they could not criticize the usul, the foundations, the methodology, the texts and the approach of the Salafis in countering extremism. You do not find that in the academia with the right contextualization, Khalid. I'll make that very clear. If there's a distorted understanding that, yes, they're extreme and there's, as you said, non-violent um, Salafis and, and these connotations that came out later. But when they're looking at the essence of where we stand, Salafia, it's none other than religious orthodoxy. It's none other than social conservatism. It's none other than, if you break down and look at the five pillars of um, Islam and the six articles of Iman, mm-hmm. as understood by the companions Revealed. and the succeeding generations, mm-hmm. it's none other than that with clarity based upon evidence. Mm. No. And they know that. Hence their inability, if the non-Muslim academics can understand this, then uh, Muslim viewers should understand when you see the attacks on Salafia, not Salafis, we have to put our hands up mm. um, for the mistakes we made as Salafis. As Muslims, we have to put our hands up that we don't always adhere to um, uh, Islam as we're supposed to. But when you're talking about Salafia uh, as in its essence, Madhab Salaf, understanding Manhaj Salaf, this is where they realize they cannot challenge it intellectually and if they've made that admission it's a sad thing that the other muslims who are detractors and who are opponents of salafia won't have that honesty and integrity to admit yeah we can't deal with that instead we're going to slander malign and cause doubt on this religious orthodoxy because that's none other than what they're doing they're casting mm. doubt on yeah. orthodoxy and, and when, I, 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 if you want to conclude on that, I, I think that that's a good point to yeah. um, to to round it up on. Yeah, I, I would just say one one thing I, where I would correct or or disagree is that I would say it's very important to qualify and say some Salafis or some adherents, some people who, because I know, you know, and we both know from our countless travels, alhamdulillah, around the world, uh, like I, I personally will just say it. Most of the Salafis I know are not like that. You know, they're yes. not. Uh, you know, but there are misconceptions. There are individuals. There are groups in the West, in the East, all around the world that have had harshness, and that's unfortunate. And I would say mostly that is a product of them not really understanding important aspects of Salafia. Why? Why would I say that? Because I'm going to leave you with one hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, al-fahishalbidi." The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "There isn't a thing that weighs heavier on the scale of the believer on the day of judgment than good manners, and verily Allah hates wicked." and sinful speech. So we know from this hadith, the madhab as-salaf, that is the madhab no. of the salaf. Yes. That is the sunnah of the Prophet Anyone who claims 
to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet that means they follow everything. And he said there isn't a thing that weighs heavier on the scale of a believer than good manners. That doesn't mean it weighs heavier than uh, Tawheed and Aqidah, because Husn al-Khulq also has a more broad meaning. That's just a general rough translation as far as good manners. But right. you know, it, it, you know, Husn al-Khulq can mean your khulq with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your, your adab, your manners with your Lord. What is your manners with your Lord? Giving him his right. What is his right? To be worshiped alone, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it includes Tawheed, obviously, but it shows us the importance of manners. And there's countless ahadith. We already know no. Aisha yes. and said, you know, his. if you want to know about the khlaq of the Prophet sallallahu this is a rough, rough paraphrase, then you'll, uh, his, his, Al-Quran. His yes. his uh his manners is the Quran. If no, you want to know him, his manners is the Quran. So this no, is absolutely. what and how many scholars have we sat with? Alhamdulillah, we know uh, you know that we know how excellent they were in manners. I can countless Mashaikh of yes. Ahl Sunnah, you know, no. you're invited to their homes, stay in their homes, come to their farm, feeding you, you know, treating you with the uh, you know, loving you as a, a reverse or look, you know. Countless, countless stories of uh, no. What you said, no scholars and Salafis from everywhere in the planet. Yeah, yeah. I should have clarified oh. that. Yeah, it's I think it's important. Yeah, it's one minority. last thing I want to hit you with, because we don't want to give anyone that narrative. What I, what, I, what I mean is, give them the narrative that okay, I'm going to say it. S pubs, for example, as an example in the West, we don't want to let anybody say, well, to point that and say that's Salafia. No. We're not, no, that's not the model. The model is kitab, wa sunnah, wa understanding the salaf, and those who follow that. So I would point to those good, those salafis who are illustrating kitab, wa sunnah, and not hisbiyah, not calling to themselves, not calling, uh, attacking the scholars of Ahl sunnah, rejoicing in their death, rahimahumullah jami'an. And we would say, no, that is wrong. We will say it's those who are adhering, you know, those adherents who you will find practicing from the east to the west. You'll find it from the scholars, you'll find it from the students of knowledge, you'll find it from all kind of people. May Allah subhanahu wa forgive us. I mean, okay, you know what, Khalid? You mm. went there, usually you're the one who gets a bit wary. When I, I had to, man. You <laughs> keep no, me. No, but I'm glad, I'm glad it was you. I'm glad yeah. you went yeah. there. And yeah, no, what, you, cl you clarified, mm. that was a qualification. I meant, yeah. yes, yeah. The, the, those with the manners and everything, ill manners, it's a minority and some of yes. us at our more formative stages as i've highlighted in previous episodes yes. we yes. we would have been there ourselves with the overzealousness this happens with conversion theory in other faiths and everything as well but yes do not judge salafia on the bad manners of a few no matter how significant or loud their voices may be and, yeah. and i'm not thinking i'm not just That's saying it. about that i'm not yeah just yeah that, that could be any you've mentioned but yeah. as, as we know as we know Khalid, um the uh, empty vessel makes the most noise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the empty, you know, the 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 the, 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 the squeaky wheel gets yeah. the oil. Yeah, there's an Oromo but, proverb, an Oromo proverb, which Oromo is a big tribe in Ethiopia, and you know it means like my friend was telling me. He said, you know, the gun when you have the gun pointing, you know, you're pointing with the index fingers, but three fingers are pointing back at you. Okay, right. so. Yeah, so this is uh, what what we find with uh, with with some of the people, you know, declaring declaring people to be hisbis and this and that and the other, but they have three defining hisbi traits, whereas the one they're attacking may have none or may ha have one, you know, yes. and this is a very That's dangerous or or the tekfiris or anyone, you know, we just have yes. to be careful of 
of doing too much of that. And, what, and, what, and, and, and to conclude, why, why is this being raised at a conclusive stage of this particular episode? Reasons for radicalization. When we believe or we are not discerning of the narrative that is pointing and criticizing religious authenticity and orthodoxy in the way that we are highlighting Salafia is that way. One of the things that we need to look at, mashallah, one of the things we need to look at is that we then become frustrated with what we are seeing as which paths to go with regards to learning on the deen. So you'll get those denigrating Salafia, not talking about the, the essence and usul of uh, foundations of Salafia, but the behavior and the, the, the manners they see of some Salafis. So they move away from them. Mm. And in essence, they move away from the fundamentals of the deen in that particular instance. And they yeah. say, we need to become more in another way. And they might see others who have exemplary manners, they're beautiful in their speech and their conduct, but they have no usul, as we see, no foundation, no sunnah. Mm. And you'll mm. see that many people gravitate very easily in mm. that particular direction. Of course, it's a natural what, what inclination. Got, what, what, has to be, what has to be understood hmm. is that's radicalization as well, hmm. of a progressive liberal extreme as... Dr. Khalid and I have spoken about in the previous episodes, just because you think that this is in that direction of religious extremism, violent extremism, takfir extremism, which it isn't, it's just that society has tried to wedge it in that particular area. You mm. feel you need to gravitate away from there and move in that particular direction. But you're actually moving from a middle perspective of understanding the religion and you're gravitating towards either a uh, plural, um, uh, um, liberal extreme, progressive extreme, if you're not going to the religious, kharaji, takfiri, violent extreme. And yep. Khalid, do you have the last word? We can I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching. Okay, two quick points. One is also with that gravi gravitating, as you mentioned, going to the progressive extreme, even if they don't go to the progressive extreme and they're attracted to manners, you will find a lot of times when you go into depth with a lot of those people who have the most so-called beautiful manners on the outward, when you upset them, you will see they explode like a volcano worse than anyone you can imagine. If you go against their medhab, like you, you sit down with Jamaat Tablik, we've had those, those, those kind of things. Brother, I don't want to hear about contemporary scholars. We only follow the scholars that are dead, and you know this. You know, and using weak and fabricated narrations. A real story. Also in the Oromo region, I went to Oromo region in Ethiopia, and we we're on a Dawa trip. And the masjid, there was a brother. He, we stayed in his 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 masjid. He had a masjid on his property. He had a lot of property in a in an area called Butajira, and anyhow. Hyenas were coming out. We couldn't go out at night and go to the bathroom. We had to go as a group. It was it was pretty cool. Anyhow, so we went to different masajid. Why did he build this masjid? He built this masjid with his own wealth on his property because once there was a Salafi dai who just came to the masjid and talked about Tawheed. He gave the khutbah. During the khutbah, all of these jamaat tablik was the, the constituency. They dragged him from the mimbar in the middle of the khutbah and beat him just for talking about Tawheed. No, we don't want to talk about that. This is, you know, Tawheed al and worshiping Allah alone. No, 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 no. This is conflict. This is division. They took him from the mimbar. This in, influenced this brother to build this. 
and and he, mashallah, had relations with all these brothers, and they, you know, mashallah, you know, supported the dawah, you know, and we got to stay there, and he had a masjid on his property, a lot of property, and so what you'll find a lot of times, and we have countless stories like this, you know, they'll be really nice and giving their ban and stuff like this, but if you go up, you know, you have any even a knowledge-based discussion about their methodology or something, you'll find, you know, a lot of those manners go out the door. This is the reality. It's not a, no, they're muta'asib jiddin. They are, some of, some of them are very, very uh, blind followers. And so we, we reject that from anyone. The last point I wanted to make, there was a sister who had a question earlier, if you recall, and I don't remember what her question was, uh, um, yeah, Hassan, there was a question, um, that's right, and we, I said I will come back to that question if you can remember which one it was, and then we'll address it about extremism, <laughs> um, how, how can, um, to prevent... One oh yeah, how, that was it, that was it there, how, how to prevent extremism, if you want to, in a quick, and I'll give a quick or, you know, something, and then, and then we'll... I would say very briefly, on. um, yeah. one is study. Mm. And that doesn't mean you have to be a talib at, at, the, uh, at the, the highest degree, mm. okay? But to study. And where you're getting your references and your sourcing from is so, so important. And mm. I'm going to let Khalid um, come from the scholastic point, but in the same way that we are very careful about the food that we eat, the, yeah. the, 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 the nutrients that we drink, mm. we should be even more careful about the knowledge that we are consuming for our soul. Yes, and so and so with that, I'll hand it to Khalid to give that mm. that that scholarly, um, <clears throat> dini perspective, inshallah, and we conclude conclude we can conclude on that, inshallah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's what I, I you know I I concur that looking at your sources, you know who you're taking your knowledge from, make sure it's reputable people, make sure they're they're teaching you that which is going to bring you closer to Allah and beneficial knowledge that they actually go through text with you not just simply lectures that feel good because that doesn't really rectify the overall community. It can make you feel good. I know there's a lot of big popular guys out there who make people feel good, you know, and, and feel a little bit good about their Islam or their Iman. Wow, he's such a nice manners. I love he makes nice jokes, but does that build you? Does that build and reform your household? Is that gonna help you and your kids? Does it help you practice and come closer to Allah? So you need to make sure that you, you also, it's uh, knowledge, it comes, you know, it's in stages and look to those who are reputable. I think that's that's about the uh, some of the best things I can say. And look for those traits. Look for the ones that are, you know, if you see people who are, as far as looking at, at these traits and others, look to those people who are beginning to kind of drift away, kind of beginning to interpret things on their own, you know, and this is a danger. This goes back to what, uh, what you said, doctor, about the Juhayman incident and stuff, that, you know, in a lot of situations, we had, situations like this that were students of Sheikh Mukbil that went crazy in some of the stuff. One guy, he robbed an armored car with a crossbow. This is true. You know what? And these were the same guys. Some of these individuals, they were there in the camp, but the Sheikh's not responsible for their action because they might not even attended the regular durus. They, some of these guys were known to just sit in the library and read. And what did we talk about before? That the one who his books are his scholars, then he is misguided. Right. This is a statement of the self that you can't just depend on your interpretations and your understanding and your contextualization of major books of scholarship.
Chip, and no. you're going to make your own tafsir. Oh, I don't need any scholars. I'll just go to the Quran myself and I will interpret. No, this this is what leads so many people astray. And and this is what we see from many of the people out there, some of them being du'at al-abwaba jahannam, like the Prophet said, okay. they are dais, they are callers to the gates of the hellfire. And it may not seem like it. Hey, I like what he's saying. He gave me a nice quote. He gave me an ayat. He gave me a hadith. He gave me a statement of the classic scholar. But this guy's never studied. The guy sitting in Birmingham, for example, or uh, Croydon or Luton or wherever, and he's just reading his book, and, and you are following and loving it, and, and, and it sounds so good, and you're eating it up, and you don't know where he's taking you. You don't know where he's taking you. But Allah protects his deen, and a lot of times these kind of ideologies will be exposed. So I would just say one of the most important things is also the hadayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, dua to Allah, supplicating to Allah, worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being sincere to Allah, and listening to beneficial, known scholars from Ahlul Sunnah to protect you from these false ideologies. And so you can understand these issues when these issues arise, when Daesh arise, when ISIS ar arose, so many people were confused. Right. You know, it right. takes time um, even to process. The people and even the scholars, the ulama, they take time to look at that. The major scholars, they don't just, the first time they arise, they issue a fatwa, that they make darasa. They take their time and they look at this and say, who are these people? Who are their leaders? What are their goals and their objectives? What are they doing? You know, how does this go with Islam? Then they issue fatawa. So it and takes Carly, time. To, yeah. Now, to conclude on that, I just mm. want to ask a simple question that the viewers can see. No. When Daesh first arose, did you have any confusion? Did you and me have any confusion or doubt? No, definitely I didn't. I didn't. None at all. No. None whatsoever. You just saw it, yeah. Because you already, saw, yeah, yeah. We saw ahead. because of the studies that we've done in the early days, and I'm not saying praising ourselves in that sense there, but what I'm trying to say and assure the, the viewers if you go according to the path of studying knowledge, even at a rudimentary stage, and traverse that path as Dr. Khalid has just highlighted now, when you see these fitness arise, you will not be confused. Mm -hmm. And if you do not know, you will wait patiently, inshallah. You will wait patiently to see, have the scholars spoken? Are they able to speak at this particular time? Because there may be, uh, this is another a, a, a discussion for another time. Are they able to speak at this particular time? And what have they said? And who those scholars are in that instance? So we've gone over time, and I think it's been necessary mm -hmm. to do that. This has been yet another important yeah. um, discussion. And I hope um, that uh, our viewers... Um, have benefited from that um, and if they want to revisit it please do revisit and you can field your questions and Dr Khaled is there um, and he's got his YouTube channel you can contact me on my um, on my um, website my email address that's um, provided there you can mainly you can contact New Park Castle Fast FM and um, they will be able to provide um, answers to you um, as and when necessary if you need to come back through us and we look forward to seeing you in a fortnight, inshallah ta'ala. So, jazakum Allah khair. Yes, uh, yeah. wise words from Dr. Green, alhamdulillah. And salamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.